I'm Brian Noen for Jake. He's Jimmy Cook here on The Fan. Pleased to welcome in Scott Agnes. He covers the Pacers for Fieldhouse Files and 1075thefan.com. Scott, what's going on, man? Did you have uh, – I shouldn't ask you if you had money on the initial tip-off, but were you surprised that uh, Miles Turner won the initial tip-off against Wembenyama, who is, I think, seven foot eighty or something over there? Yeah, I don't know how you couldn't be. I think he's won, at least as far as I've seen, every tip leading into this game. And on top of that, Miles doesn't win a ton of them uh, historically. So, yeah, that actually absolutely was a, a good start and a, a good sign of things to come last night for Indiana. Scott, how did you feel overall? I know Wembenyama was coming off a of back-to-back. I know that they went to overtime the night before. How did you feel like they were able to... I don't want to say contain, but they definitely took advantage of his fatigue and limited him pretty well. The offense is clicking like that. No one's coming back. But how did you feel like they operated defensively against Victor? Yeah, I thought the Pacers did exactly what they should do in a, a scenario like this, right? This is a very difficult back-to-back because not only did they have a game the previous afternoon, but they had to travel halfway across the country from Texas. And so uh, you got a young team, an experienced team, a, a team that hadn't come together, right, just because of the pure inexperience. And they, they didn't take them lightly, and they left it to, you know, they left it to uh, no question here, led the entire game. And, and I thought they weren't intimidated by Victor. They were curious, I think might be the best way to put it, because he's such a unique talent, basically a point guard in a center's body that can do a little bit of everything. But they weren't intimidated out there and just dominated every single quarter. Um, Just a few games into the season, Scott, what would you say that you like the most about the Pacers so far this season and what you like the least? Yeah, I I think – it's, it's the high scoring, as we all expected. This is no surprise to anyone. Um, there's certain things within the offense, still tweaks that need to be made, guys that can maybe assert themselves more or get a little bit more comfortable within the flow of the offense, certainly. I liked how they've improved on their starts. Remember, they were awful to start games for about the first handful. But the last three games, they're plus 26. So they've been really good in those after that Boston debacle. Uh, recovered well. Um, and what I really haven't liked is the defense. Uh, I mean, to be fair, it's a work in progress. I knew I wasn't going to evaluate it after a couple of weeks. And maybe after the first month, you'd start to get a better idea. Um, but they're trying something very different, very new. Tyrese was talking to us in training camp about how this, the way in which they're trying to defend is unlike any way he has previously. So if your star player is saying that, imagine how the rest of the team, especially the younger guys, especially the second-year guys, that uh, are getting more opportunity, how they feel about it. Defense is a huge red flag with that being countered, I think, with a huge green flag of, of what the offense has been able to do. Scott Agnes covers the Pacers for Fieldhouse Files. Scott, we were discussing this the other day, and as long as they're winning, it doesn't matter. They'll figure it out as the season goes on. But how long into the season do you think it'll take before we have a clear answer of, obviously, Tyrese Halliburton's number one, but who they're secondary scoring option is consistently because I would argue right now there's a number of different angles they can go because the depth that they have do we see separation at any point in the season and if we do how long will it take to properly evaluate that yeah that's that's a a fair question here I'm not sure there will be in this season at least because it seems like they have several guys that will be be able to assert themselves based on matchups based on who has the flow uh you know if, if 
Bruce Brown knocks down a couple threes early, it might be him. If Buddy comes off the bench and like the last couple of games, we've seen him knock down a three-pointer in like one second and like eight seconds right when he comes in, that's a sign of good things to come. It could be Miles Turner, and so much of that depends on how opposing teams defend him. There's certain teams – uh, like Cleveland, like Washington, that we know how they're going to sag off. They're going to sag off the pick and pop, and it's going to be there. So if he's hitting, it's going to be his night. So I'm not really expecting Jimmy for a, a big, big-time number two to emerge this season. Man, when you look at the rest of the East here, Scott, what would you say realistically is the Pacers' ceiling and also their floor this season? Yeah, I've, I've changed and, and – wiggled around here a lot with this. I thought going into the summer before they've made any moves, I thought I was talking a lot about Brian, how maybe this should be a a season where they're the sixth seed at highest, but they're certainly a playoff team. I back off that a a little bit after seeing the moves they made, the moves they did not make, how the roster still is a, a little redundant in terms of guards, in terms of centers. There's lacking clarity still from that department. I think realistically, this is a, a, the ceiling is a play-in, and the, the floor is probably just outside the playoffs. They probably are going to be flirting with that 9-11 to 11 spot for most of the season, I think. There will be growing pain, certainly. Um, they're still trying to figure out lineups. You talked earlier about you know what initial impressions to start this season. Part of it is just the lineups and whom plays with whom, especially to close the games where they completely go away from the starting lineup and kind of resort back to what the starting lineup was last season when they're when they're playing smaller, they're playing uh, a little bit more agile, and there's a lot more chemistry, I think, amongst that bunch. Pacers beat writer Scott Agnes taking some time with us. Scott, you mentioned that defense is still a struggle. We knew that going into the season, that it was going to be a work in progress. One area that mm-hmm. at times, especially in losses, has been especially frustrating has been their defensive action in the pick and roll, especially at the top and with the roller. Where is that best addressed with this team, and where do you feel like the biggest area for those struggles have been so far for the Sirs? Yeah, I would completely agree with that assessment. And and a lot of that goes into what they are being asked to do and whether guys are doing it or even handling it correctly. So long long story way to try to explain it is this season they're trying to switch everything less and more take on those pick and rolls as we've seen the NBA really emerge and, and become basically a pick and roll screening action type setup. And so they're really just trying to take those matchups two versus two rather than um, needing help from a weak side defender and that stuff. And quite honestly, that stuff's getting them beat a lot. Um, they're also not sending help and sending double a lot of times. We saw a couple of games ago, Gordon Hayward in the, in the post, he was pleasantly surprised as he kept just getting Benedict Matherin one-on-one in the post and he exploited it. Had 10 points in the second quarter, I think, after not scoring in the first quarter. So a lot of it is, I think, giving this, this new defensive style some time. It starts, I think, with these players elevating their own individual play. And that became a primary theme in training camp, Jimmy, that we saw. is uh, I think towards the end of practice during camp, they would hold these one-on-one battles to reiterate and hammer home the ideal idea that you have to win your matchup. You have It starts with you before it involves a second defender, before it involves five defenders. Uh, Bobby Toppin was really good at that. He was the last winner, I believe, that they did that with. Um, which was, I thought, very interesting and something that he was very proud of. But it's, a lot of the problems start with uh, trying to learn and adapt with this new scheme. It's players elevating their own defensive style, and quite honestly, it's not a great individual defensive team. That's in large part 
why they brought in Bruce Brown in the offseason. Um, but this is something we're definitely going to be tracking over the next month or so as we can paint a fuller picture of what this new defense looks like. You know, Scott, you look at Halliburton, and he's a, a really, really solid point guard. You look at the other point guards in the NBA, and it's rich. Right? You look at mm-hmm. Curry and Luka and SGA and Dame and De'Aaron Fox, and the list goes on and on. Where do you think Halliburton checks in in the pecking order? I don't need you to tell me, like, number eight. Here's my top ten. I don't know off the top of your head, but, I mean, yeah. just a realistic range of where he's at among what is still a very, very rich in talent position. Yeah, it really is. I would probably put him just outside kind of that all-NBA category. So all-star fringe, all-star once again type, but not quite as that elite top three type point guard. He's done wonders clearly with this franchise, both in how he handles himself off the court, but also just on the court, his infectious attitude, his positivity, and the way in which he involves everyone, um, especially early in games sometimes. You'll even see him, you might maybe only have a couple of buckets, but he'll have like four assists in the first five minutes. Um, And that's something he tries to be an extension of Carlisle on the court. He tries to be the quarterback on the court. And coming off of a game where Rick Carlisle clinched his 900th win as a head coach, one thing uh, that I give Carlisle a lot of credit about is how he has evolved as a coach. I was talking with Chauncey Billups about this, uh, Pacers analyst Eddie Gill, who all played for him. And they were like, yeah, back then – he was in control of everything. He scripted every play. He called every play. Well, if you watch now, he empowers his players. He empowers his point guard, and especially Tyrese Halliburton, to read and see what the defense is doing. And then this offseason, we saw them really go all in on trying to be that quick transition team, much like they were last year, but even better. And Tyrese's abilities allow for that. So they're really leaning in on his strengths. And hoping his defense, which is probably his greatest weakness, hopefully that improves. And by doing so, maybe that can be contagious and they can become a better defensive team. Because they don't need to be, at least this season, a top 10 defense or, uh, you know, even a top uh, 15. If they could just be average right there, if they could just sit right about 15 to 20, that would be a sweet spot rather than, say, 26 or 28, I think, over the last two years. Scott Agnes is our guest. He covers the Pacers for Fieldhouse Files. Scott, we're seven games in. Pacers sit at four and three. And again, maybe this is a question in the territory of difficult to answer at this point. But is this the most comfortable and the most free that Miles Turner has ever played in a Pacers uniform? I think so. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think, Jimmy, more than anything, it's just experience. And from experience, it breeds kind of the confidence, assertiveness, Um, mental strength. I I think that's the biggest thing he would acknowledge individually over the last two seasons, Jimmy, is how he has evolved mentally and understood his role on the team, understood his role for the franchise. Um, uh, It's really interesting. I could probably do a whole hour about Miles Turner's evolution, but I think it's really interesting how he's kind of grounded, accepted who he is, um, wants to be all about winning and, and impacting his team here. But notice, to his credit, He's gone away, I think, from talking about individual awards publicly necessarily. Certainly they're uh, what he's, um, you know, you like if that comes with the product. But, you know, first several years, so many times we'd hear defensive player of the year, all defensive team. Of course those are goals. But now he has bigger goals, and that's to get back to the playoffs. It's to have a positive impact on this team. It's to be a leader, which he's doing more so than ever before. And I think more so it's by example, although defensively where they need it, 
he's communicating. And so, yeah, I, again, um, it's really positive, I think, what we're seeing from Miles as a whole, and it's only going to improve. He's in year nine, and I think this guy, uh, you know, playing 500 games with the Pacers, it's amazing to see that in this day and age when so many players uh, are moving around, and more than anything, so many other players want out of their situation if it becomes uncomfortable. He's kind of embraced that and grown as a human because of previous experiences. He's Scott Agnes, covers the Pacers, joining us here on The Fan. You know, it's crazy, right? It just gets me to think what you're saying with Miles and you bring in Halliburton to that mix. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when we evaluate players, we're looking at what they do individually, right? We're looking at points, rebounds, assists, whatever it may be. But you think about the impact that those veterans have on such a young core, you know? Like, how would you describe that? compared to other teams where certainly they might have great players who are also great for the young guys as well. But comparatively speaking, how would you assess that with the Pacers specifically? Yeah, I think, I think it's a group that's always growing right now. Um, And I don't think there's a dominant leader, like in years past, like you knew it was David West, like he would command a locker room if he just spoke up. Right. I don't think there's that commanding type guy here and it can depend on the situation. Yes, Tyrese is the face of the franchise, so his what he says carries more weight. But Miles at times will speak up. Bruce Brown can speak up and lean on his experience. I know uh, before the start of training camp, they all went over to GM Chad Buchanan's home and had a kind of a preseason meeting. And at this meeting, one of the things they did was bring up those players with successful off-seasons, talking about Daniel Tice, who won a gold cup. A uh, gold medal, excuse me, with Germany. Uh, you brought up Bruce Brown, who just won an NBA title um, with the Denver Nuggets, to the front of the room. Who could those guys could offer perspective on on where they've been, what it took, and so much of it was coming together as a team and, and growing together. And so here's a, a couple things. Then we've been tracking, or at least I have here in the early part of the season. I'm not so caught up, say, in Benedict Matherin's points. I'm caught up on, is he making the right pass? And his assists have been impressive for many games. Just two the other night, last night. But there's been several games where he's had like four, five, six assists. That's very different. That's, he's not used to that part of his game. It's rather than um, previously, put your head down, get to the basket, get fouled. I think he averaged almost seven free throw attempts per game last season. He's having to play a very different style and adapt to what he's doing. Bruce Brown, same thing. Um, and, and the bigger one, too is Buddy Heald, and this is probably something I'm going to write in the next week on Fieldhouse Files, is his defensive end. Like, that's always been a weak spot. It's something that the Pacers, I think, a little bit accepted. But look, if they're going to change team defense, it starts with the individuals, like I referenced earlier. And Buddy, Buddy is no exception, and I, th- I think he's done a good job of getting better on the defensive end. And, and by doing so, a lot of it's like rebounding. It's an effort. It's a want to. And even though he's not starting right now, he hadn't let that hold him back or change his attitude. He's embracing what Rick's been telling him. What is this week in terms of a back-to-back Utah coming up on Wednesday and then a real measurement type of game, second one of the season arguably after Boston against Milwaukee? What can we learn about the Pacers over these next two? Yeah, I think the, over the next two, with Utah, it's how do you measure up with a, a team that's also currently under a rebuild? And then Milwaukee, can you hang tough? Like, this is a team, I haven't done the math in, in the last year, but Milwaukee has dominated the series since, like, 2018. And they're winning by, like, an average of 20 points per game where it hadn't even been close. It's just a mesh of styles that does not go well 
I don't know why, for the Pacers and then obviously the star talent, not only with Giannis, but now you add Dane to the mix. Then you add Philly with Joel Embiid, a good measuring stick for Miles Turner and other centers um, there. I, I think it's important first you got this stretch of five home games in a row. It's a rarity, and one of two times it will happen this season for the Pacers, so it's important for them to handle that business, 11 of 16, to start the season at home. Then they're going to be really tested. So you got this Milwaukee game coming up on Thursday, a notable measuring stick. And then I kind of like this, this two-game series in Philadelphia, a power in the East, kind of that uh, Tier 2 team to me in the Eastern Conference. I think we'll be able to learn a lot more about this team than we will against teams like Charlotte and San Antonio. Well, hey, Scott, always appreciate you uh, talking some Pacers with us, man. Great job as always, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Yep, there he is, Scott Agnes. Covers the Pacers for Fieldhouse Files. Also, 1075thefan.com. I'm Brian Noen for Jake. He's Jimmy Cook. Here on The Fan, pleased to welcome in Stephen Holder. Covers the Colts for ESPN.com. Man, Stephen, some uh, some talk about the Colts and the playoffs. Are you turning into uh, Jim Mora over there like me? Go, playoffs? As far as your reaction to that? Yes, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, um, I love the enthusiasm. Uh, let's start with maybe, you know, trying to, to put together, um, you know, an, an actual NFL caliber offensive performance. And we'll go from there. Um, look, I mean, I think it's, I will say this, the, the Colts, I'm, I'm being mean. Let me not do that. The Colts have, they have actually put together, they, they've, let me put it this way. They've maximized what they are this year, you know, because to be completely honest, they're generally the same team they were last year at this point when you think about the fact that Anthony Richardson's out. And, you know, certainly they have a, a couple of pieces that are different, obviously. But, but the roster top to bottom didn't change drastically from last year. And so with a backup quarterback and, and who they are right now, I mean, they're, they're competitive most weeks. So that's far more than I ever uh, expected of them this year, I mean, I, I thought with Richardson playing, I figured they might be in the in the six or seven win range, and I think his performance early gave you some sense that maybe they could they could surpass that. But now that he's gone, you still you know it's still possible they could surpass that. And I, and I'll end by saying this: I mean, the schedule we said it was a manageable schedule. It is working out to be that. Like sometimes you're wrong about that when you try to forecast, Oh, that's an easy schedule. When you say that before the season, that often doesn't translate. It actually kind of has translated. I, I just went through it earlier today. I think they have two teams left or two opponents left of their final eight who have an actual record above 500. So look, I guess nothing's out of the question. Stephen Holder of ESPN.com covers the Colts. Taking some time with us here on Query and Company. Stephen, this is kind of a two-part question because it has to do with Josh Downs, and I don't know if there's been any clarity yet on his status after he left Sunday's game with a knee injury. So that's part one. Has there been any clarity yet? And if there's not been, does the fact that they worked out Sammy Watkins yesterday tie into that at all, or are they just trying to find more bodies and depth in that room? So no, there hasn't been any additional clarity other than to say, <clears throat> excuse me, other than to say that uh, the the issue on on Sunday was a continuation 
of what he was dealing with last week. So at least it's not a new injury. I guess that at least is, is somewhat comforting, but I guess it also leaves open the possibility that he uh, made that injury worse. So I guess we'll see. Tomorrow's a big day. Uh, to their, their larger point about depth and Sammy Watkins work, working out, I think they're related to a degree, but they're also not related because there is a – even beyond Josh Downs, there is – there is an issue there. Uh, I and mean, this has been an issue from the jump. I mean, so Isaiah McKenzie came in and played the rest of the game on Sunday. And I looked it up. I can't remember. He had played less than 10% of the offensive snaps this year. I mean, he, he basically had not played at all. And so he's their fourth receiver, essentially. And so your fourth receiver is a guy who wasn't even, has never been on the field this year. So that's a pretty – bad indicator of your depth, you know, because if he, if he was good enough to put out there, you would, you would at times at least rotate some guys in, you know, and maybe give, uh, give other guys a break. That hasn't been the case. And so, yeah, I think their depth has been, has been problematic at wide receiver all year. And it wouldn't necessarily even be a, a move if they were to sign someone, whether it be Sammy Watkins or someone else, it wouldn't necessarily mean that player is going to play a ton, but it, it is, I think, a continued search for depth, which they need, frankly, at that position. They're really thin. Now, I'll, I'll end by saying this. They have gotten, I think, good production out of that position for what they have. You know, a lot of people were down on what they have, and, and they still think they need they – don't, they don't have an elite wide receiver. I get that, and I don't disagree but for what they have, I actually think they've gotten a good bit of production from the guys that they have, including Alec Pierce. The production maybe isn't there, but Alec Pierce is doing his job. He's doing what's asked of him, uh, despite the lack of, of big numbers. You know, Stephen, you mentioned wanting to see more consistency. It just got me thinking, what would you say the Colts are most consistent at, and where are they the least consistent? <laughs> This is such a funny thing, man. I had to do this mid-season update to, earlier today um, that I'll publish later. And I was trying to, like, give the essence of the Colts this year. And it was, like, super hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know who they are or what they are sometimes. It was mm-hmm. kind of frustrating. But I would say, oh, man. One thing I think they do well is they have played – relatively well in the trenches this year. I think the offensive line has done a decent job. They definitely have, have shown improvement this year. I'll give them that. The defensive line has not been consistent in terms of pass rush, and they have actually been a little underwhelming against the run, which has been surprising. But I think when, when the defense has flashed this year, it's been those guys up front. And, and you saw it on, on Sunday against the Panthers. Granted, that's not a very good offensive line, but they did what they're supposed to do, which is to dominate up front. And, you know, they had Bryce Young on the run throughout that game and made it tough on him. You know, they hit a couple of runs, but ultimately they weren't able to really stick with the run uh, because the, the Panthers, that is, they, because they got behind. So they, they've actually been, a, I think, a, a formidable team in the trenches this year. Not great, but, but good enough. And, and I think they've been consistently pretty good in the trenches. So I like that. Uh, what they have not done well, uh, I, I really think it's just, it's been splash plays across the board. 
And that's why getting those two pick sixes uh, from Kenny Moore on on Sunday was so huge because, you know, how often have you seen those kinds of plays this season? You just haven't seen them. And then offensively, there's been a lack of them too. Now, they have had a, a fair number uh, in, in, in spurts. You know, they've had them in spurts on offense. But then there are games like the last couple of games, you just, you just don't see enough of them. So I, I just think, you know, they need those, they need those game-breaking plays that make winning easier. Uh, their wins have been really hard to pull off, you know, and I think when you when you have big plays, it just it, it takes some of the difficulty out of that and, and helps you get to the finish line. So, you know, I don't know if that's a great answer, but that's kind of how I see it. Colts beat reporter for ESPN.com, Stephen Holder, joins us. Stephen, I've asked you this question the last couple of weeks. I want to get your thoughts on it now. Snap count distribution, 45 to 13 in favor of Jonathan Taylor this past week. Does that continue to increase, or do you feel like that's probably about right in terms of seventy-five percent, roughly, to about you know twenty-five percent in terms of where the snap counts are? Is that about the separation, or is he still ramping up even further now that we're outside of that month-long window of ramping him up that Shane Steigen talked about? Right, it's a good question. I you know I think it's still fluid, but I I actually think that Zach Moss is going to continue to have a role. So we may be getting to a point where maybe this is what it looks like. And, you know, we'll see. I, I think that that Steichen is a big believer in keeping guys fresh at that position. He's talked about that a lot. And, and I think he believes that, you know, no matter uh, how well one or the other is playing, he still wants to kind of have somewhat of a rotation. Um, I, I think that we're kind of probably getting to the to the limits of of the distribution there. So we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong, but but that's how I envision it. Un, unless and until Shane Steichen uh, shows differently. Now he did kind of have a one man show early in the season uh, when Zach Moss was rolling, but that was really I think a product of of him not having great options. You know, behind Zach Moss. You know, I don't think he set out to have Zach Moss carry the ball, whatever it was, 30-plus times in Baltimore. That was not by design. Uh, that was just what the game required. So, yeah, I, I, but I, I do think ultimately, or ideally, I guess, he, he wants to at least have some kind of a, a distribution there at running back. So that's, that's kind of how I see it shaking out. Man, not used to seeing the Patriots at 2-7. and seven. Right, yeah. but uh, yeah. that's where they are right now. And I'm looking for a, a bigger surprise. I mean, maybe the Giants at two and seven. Do you see a bigger surprise? I didn't expect the Patriots to be world beaters, but if you said nine games in, they'd be two and seven. I'd be like, really? Do you see a bigger surprise than that with the Pats? Yeah, I mean, I thought they were a bad team, but I mean, there's bad, and then there's New England bad. You know, yeah. I, and I had a different definition of what that was. Um, you know, I think. I'm with you. I, I didn't. I didn't expect this. I didn't expect anything good. But this is a different level of. This is a different level than what I expected. I, you know, it, it really boils down though to, look, it, a lot of the same things we just talked about with the Colts. They they have those problems, but they're worse. <laughs> okay, like they don't have game breakers on that team. Who yeah. are they? Name yeah. one. You can't. You know, and, and so, think about it. You already have some questions at quarterback. 
that's fine. I mean, so do the Colts with Gardner Minshew, let's be honest. But at least you have, you know, a Jonathan Taylor and you have, you know, a, a, a guy like Josh Downs who has been a revelation. And, and Michael Pittman is still a guy who, after the catch, no one wants to deal with him. And, and certainly he will go up and, and fight for any ball. And they still have guys capable of making, making legitimate NFL-caliber plays, you know. And the Patriots have a very short list of those types of players. I'm just telling you. And, and then defensively, I think that's the thing. Even when they, they maybe fell short on offense, and, and Tom Brady didn't always have this great supporting cast on offense. There were many years where, where Tom Brady – did have to rely very heavily on his defense. You know, that's not to say <laughs> the defense was carrying Tom Brady. I'm just saying you got a pretty big assist from the defense at times. And the defense, I don't think, is up to snuff this year to, to be able to do that. So, I don't know. I and mean, for them, though, they still have this approach of being sort of a game plan team. And by that, I mean, you know, they try to come up with, with a plan to beat every individual opponent as opposed to, just running what they run and, and applying it uh, specifically to the opponent. So that it, when they're good at that or when they do a good job of that, it does enable them, you know, like, for example, in beating Buffalo, it, it enables them to maybe score an upset once in a while, but they don't have the players to really pull it off right now. And, and that is, I think, a, a critique of Bill Belichick, the, the general manager, frankly. ESPN Stephen Holder is our guest Steven, 9.6 million viewed Chiefs Dolphins, most watched international game on record. Brian and I joked that, well, from a scoring standpoint, maybe Colts Pats could be higher scoring than the 35 Chiefs Dolphins put up. But that number, how, how far down do you think that number goes with Colts Pats being the international game this weekend? Uh, are you questioning America's passion for Gardner <laughs> Minshew versus Mac Jones? How <laughs> dare you suggest such a thing? How dare you? How dare you, sir? I, I don't understand the question. Uh, look, I, I think they'll get you know they'll get the the New England market. They'll certainly tune in because you know they love them some Patriots at least for now. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how many losing seasons they're willing to put up with. But anyhow, you know th- that'll give them a boost, I guess. But. No, it's it's not a. It is, this is not a premier matchup. There's no doubt about it. Look, you get the you get the one you know window all to yourself, so that helps a little bit, and you're going to get viewers because it's NFL football at 9:30 on a, a Sunday morning. And let's be honest, what the hell else is anybody else doing on at 9:30 <laughs> on on Sunday morning, right? I mean, you know, if, if you want to go to church, you know, catch the late service, right? You can still watch the game. <laughs> So depending on if your if your pastor does the multiple service thing. So anyway, I don't know. It's, I don't know what it's going to be. It will not challenge Dolphins and Chiefs. That we know. Uh, it, it, I don't know. In, in fact, it's kind of interesting that they they put this game together. I mean, I, it feels like the international matchups this year have been. I don't want to say marquee games, but but there have been some more appealing games. You know, maybe it's because it's not all Jaguars games like the old Jaguars. And, and they're finally so good, maybe, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but um, but this was this did not fall in line with that, <laughs> with that, uh, that effort in terms of getting, you know, a- appealing matchups over in Europe this year. <laughs> 
That's a tough act to follow, right? Chiefs, it Dolphins, is. <laughs> like in is. terms of buildup. Yeah, it's uh, this is kind of like the B stage as the closing act. What we have going <laughs> on right. with Colts and yeah, Patriots. I mean, they got the undercard going as the main event, I guess. You know, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all. Well, hey, Stephen, always good to hear your voice, man. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to catch you soon. All right. Talk to you soon, guys. All right, man. There he is, Stephen Holder. Covers the Colts for ESPN.com. Love that guy, man. He does a great job. I'm Brian Noen for Jake. He's Jimmy Cook. Here on the fan, our guy, Kevin Bowen. Mr. KB. Uh, let's talk a little Pacers. Feeling a little bit better? A little, like, marginally better about the season-long win total bet with the Pacers dropping over 150 points last night. That was an offensive explosion, KB. Yes, it was. Um, I remain, and I guess last time we talked was, what, Friday? They're 2-1 and one since then. I think I said to you guys, yeah, I, I might feel bad today, but you know, ask me again in a week. I, I still am pretty bullish on their depth. I mean, like, when Aaron Neesmith and Buddy Heels get in the game, I'm like, those guys are starting quality players for you know ninety percent of the NBA. So I think over the course of eighty-two games, that's going to win out. It's going to create a playoff team. And obviously, last night you saw that depth on uh, on full display. Kev, what did you make of to this point in the season? Not just with that depth, but it feels when they are clicking offensively as seamless as they could have hoped for with Tyrese Halliburton obviously running things offensively but being able to rely on multiple different guys on a nightly basis to follow him in terms of the the Robin to his Batman. What what have you made of that aspect of the depth from an offensive standpoint? Yeah, I mean, Halliburton is just, he's really such a joy to watch. I mean, when you look at the amount of points and assists he contributes on a night in, night out basis, there are moments I'm like, wait a minute, we like, we should not take him for granted. Like guys just don't, do that, um, and, and if they do it, there certainly aren't many of them in the, in the NBA that put up that amount of points. So I think that is something that, you know, I just think for starters to pencil a guy in for whatever, 20-something and 10 or 11 assists night in and night out. Again, it's just so rare. Um, and besides that, I think, you know, you, you're going to see uh, throughout the year just whoever steps into that second, third role. I don't think it's going to be a very consistent guy. I mean, I kind of forget the box score, but I'm pretty sure it was maybe Toppin and Heald were next in terms of scoring last night. I mean, you know, some nights it could be Mather, and it's certainly been Turner. Um, you know, Neesmith had a couple big games early in the year. I do think Nemhart is a guy that can, you know, provide whatever, 12, 15 for you off the bench as well. So uh, Tyrese is a ca- catalyst to it all. I mean, I'd rank him up there with just about anybody in the NBA in terms of most valuable players for the respective teams. And um, I think you've already seen that here through the first seven games. You know, KB, I was thinking about this where uh, I'm with you. He's among the league-leading point guards, and this is not a knock, but you think about some point guards just stylistically, how it looks. There are other point guards that have a prettier game. Just looking about, just talking about how it looks, not looking at the stat sheet or anything, but uh, Damian Lillard or Kyrie Irving is basketball poetry. Do you think that... Halliburton sometimes gets a bit shortchanged because the jump shot looks mechanical and it doesn't look smooth like Steph Curry. Do you think the way it looks sometimes causes his props to be shortchanged a bit? Oh, I think without question. And I laugh because I'm probably one of them that that did that. Like when the trade is made, I'm like, oh man, what a great quarterback. Like 
but I, I label them more as kind of like the game manager. Like he'll get others involved, but you know he's never going to be a twenty point night a guy in the NBA. Like, but that's fine if he can be whatever fourteen and ten. I mean that's really quality point guard play in the NBA. And, and it's not only the shot, but he, I mean he's, he'd be the first one to tell you he's not the quickest. He certainly is not the most athletic. Um, it's not like it's Russell Westbrook playing point guard or, you know, John Morant speed or, I don't know, Darren Fox. I'm trying to think of some other point guards in the league. But he just is able to have an unbelievable basketball IQ. And that he's obviously, uh, you know, pretty athletic. His height, I think he uses well. I think he changes speed really well. And ultimately, I just think he's a step ahead of everybody on the floor. And as, you know, awkward looking as that jump shot is, it, it goes in at an extremely high rate. And I just think... He's a confident, confident guy. He took some jumpers last night that I was like, wow, um, <laughs> that is neon green light. And, again, you know, several of them go in. And, uh, you know, his ability to just not only be a distributor at an elite level, but I think he is an elite scorer. Uh, again, it goes back to the combination I was talking about. That is rare. And that's why his value to Indiana, to me, you know, ranks up there with, you know, a lot of guys in the league, whether it was, you know, Lillard on Portland or, you know, some of these guys you kind of individually you know, would call the lead guys on the respective teams. Uh, to me, Halliburton is right up there with anybody in the league. The fan zone, Kevin Bowen, nice enough to join us. KB, first measuring stick game, didn't get a lot to take away from the Pacers, beat down lots at the hands of the Celtics last week. Milwaukee comes into town, Pacers will be off of a back-to-back against Utah. They'll be at full strength this time, hopefully, assuming all things go according to plan against the Jazz. What do you want to see from them against Damian Lillard and Giannis for the first time this year? Well, I, I think I'll point to last night and just what Obi Toppin was able to do against Victor Webb and Yama. I'd assume Toppin gets a call against Giannis. You know, that's always been a big question. With the Pacers in the box, okay, who is going to try and attempt to guard, you know, one of the freakish players we've really ever seen. And, and obviously Milwaukee has been great over the last, you know, handful of seasons, but they have just dominated this matchup. And not just like strictly wins and losses, but it just seems like every single time these two teams get together, it's a double-digit point loss for the Pacers. So I just think in general, the fact that Milwaukee is going to have the back-to-back, technically they're going to have a little less time travel-wise. Is I think I, I even think they tip off like an hour later than the Pacers, obviously. Indiana's at home. Milwaukee's got to get on a plane to come to Indianapolis. So um, I think it's a good – little test early in the season, uh, especially after how the Bucks game went or uh, how the Celtics game went. Granted, you didn't have Halliburton, like you said, and, you know, you've already beaten Cleveland twice. So uh, I'm really looking forward to Thursday night and just seeing how the Pacers handle that, that challenge. Uh, Kevin Bowen with us here on The Fan. KB, I, I'm trying to think about how to word this properly. If you look at the Colts and some people are throwing out the P word, playoffs, what would be the Pacers' equivalent in season wins that would equal your level of surprise of the Colts making the playoffs? Does that make sense to you? Ooh, that was worded. Yeah, yeah. I think I got it. I hope everybody got that. Yeah, okay. I got you on that. Um, okay, so we're, we're talking the Colts, you know, whatever, 10 wins, whatever it mm-hmm. takes to get to be a wild card team. Um, I had seven for the Colts at the start of the year, so you bumped that up. Uh, oh Sorry, I feel like I'm out from the hangover with all these numbers in my head right now. Um, 60? Oof, yeah. Right? Yeah. 
I mean, if I thought 45 for the Pacers originally, and I thought 7 for the Colts, I don't know, someone out there is a lot brighter than me could probably do the math of 17 games versus 82 games off the top of my head, but boy, 6 is a big number uh, when you say that out loud. Granted, I would probably say, you know, the Colts making the playoffs would have been, and, and you know, still is to a degree, would have been, you know, quite the uh, quite the feat at the start of the year. So, yeah, 60 sounds right. I could be 1,000% off, but I'm going to stick with 60. KB, how concerned should we be about the Colts offensively averaging, what, right around three, three and a half yards per play against the Panthers, who are by no means – you know, the Eagles or the 49ers, or the Browns, like that should have been a game where the Colts were able to kind of impose their will offensively. And I get it when you have two pick sixes from Kenny Moore, you're going to take the win game script impacts that, but where should the viewpoint be offensively, especially with Sammy Watkins getting worked out. Maybe they're trying to get more depth at wide receiver in what is turning out to be a rather critical game in Frankfurt for whatever they want the back half of this season to be. Yeah, I think that last part is probably what points to me because, you know, you brought up Carolina earlier. What were they ranked, you know, 27th, 28th, something like that against the run? And if you look at New England, I mean, yeah, they're the worst team in the in the AFC, but uh, they're second against the run. And, you know, Belichick's M.O. throughout his career has obviously been, you know, what do you do well? And we will try our darndest to make sure that you don't do that and you've got to play left-handed. So I think that aspect to it will be something to keep an eye on for Sunday. If like if they're able to do that, then it just gets really ugly. And then it's okay, who can, you know, out slug fest the other and you know, when you're in games like that, in all seriousness, that's where a weapon of Matt Gay is huge. And um that I think would be the one concern you have for Sunday if you're a Colts fan of like there's a lot of New England elements that you look at and they're like, man, that's kind of what Carolina was. But if there's a big difference it's that they do stop the run really, really well this season, and Carolina didn't stop the run very, very well this season, and yet still did that to you on Sunday. So I just think in general, you know, teams are, you know, the Colts have kind of shown their hand through the first half of the year of you know, passing offense, especially if you don't have a Josh Downs, and, you know, it is Gardner Minshew that you're going to have to do some things out of the ordinary to create big plays there. I mean, last week they had one play over 20 yards. That was a seven-yard scramble by Gardner Minshew, and a uh, 15-yard personal foul penalty tacked onto it. I mean, that, that was your one gain over 20. You know, that's you just can't live with that and expect to compete week in and week out. You know, KB, I feel like we typically interview you going into the weekend, so it's a treat that it's a Tuesday, and it's like I don't expect anything crazy to happen tonight with the morning show tomorrow. So what is the earliest time you've headed to bed before the morning show? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I would say maybe non-football season, a Sunday where as soon as I finally have talked Rosie Bowen into no more books, no more stories, time to turn over, time to go to bed. That can be 8.15. There might have been a Sunday or two where maybe the Friday or Saturday night extended a little bit longer than I was thinking, and I thought I still had a fastball. Um, which I certainly don't anymore. I would say maybe a Sunday 8.30 non-football season. But it is quite humbling if you get in the summer and the sun's still up and you're getting under the covers, and it's kind of like, oh, man, I feel like a piece of you-know-what. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, you might as well have dinner at 4 while you're at it and just fully steer into the skit at that point, right? I mean, honestly. Oh, I am 
I mean, they, I mean, seven to ten radio show. I am team lunch at ten forty, and <laughs> dinner. I mean, I'm going to pick the kids up from daycare here coming up, and there will be tacos eaten at the Bowen household by five o five p.m. Well, I like that. I like I like five o'clock sharp. But I'm saying if you're when you see the sun, it, it starts to get to the point of you know you're going to. The nursing home is knocking on the door. Is all I'm saying, KB. That, that, that's easy, a real that, that, no, no. That's a real internal crisis everybody has in the summer. If you want to catch up on some sleep, but it's like, wait, the sun's still out, and it, it's only eight fifteen. What are we doing? It's a real yeah. internal struggle. I've had it before. I'm not yeah. I'm not specifically targeting you. I've I've had it myself. Fair, fair. Okay, fair. I I was wondering where you were going. <laughs> Backtrack nicely. Thank you. Well, hey, KB, always good to catch up with you, man. Hope you have a good evening and uh, get hey, plenty of sleep for the morning d- show d- tomorrow. Does right? IU cover tonight, or are you staying up for the whole thing? Well, come on, that's a 6.30 tip here. Jimmy, let's not act like anything too, too crazy here. Um, 11 and a half seems like a very weird line to me. I'm like, is Florida Gulf Coast good? Mm. Their best player is uh, Isaiah Thompson. I saw a Purdue product, Zionsville products so i i you know part of me is like it's assembly hall assembly hall should be worth like 10 points especially to a team like florida golf coast that will be you know you'd think peeing down their leg looking at seventeen thousand <laughs> and there but having said that uh, i don't know michigan state has me nervous from from last night that uh, that might just be a stay away game maybe they'll have a nice promo where they'll have a smaller player trying <laughs> to win a tip and then forget about the rest of the game maybe i you'll get get there going who knows? Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, KB, we'll enjoy it, man. We'll catch you soon. All right, thanks, guys. Have a great rest of the week. You too, man. There he is, Kevin Bowen. Catch him in the mornings here with Andy on the fan.